Yeah, I'm watching an insane silent uh, cooking video right now that I'm gonna that I'm gonna link to you because I just I I can't wrap my brain. I have a feeling, I've seen, I have a feeling I've seen the exact same one on Twitter yesterday because I saw oh, a so silent one too. Is it the one with the layered quesadilla type of thing? It is. It is. It's exactly yeah. yes. Like that, you know, I didn't even get to the end of that one. Like it was so disconcerting to me. I just didn't even want to know what it ended up being. It was that like okay, traumatizing. I'll spoil, I'll spoil the ending. They deep fry it in breadcrumbs. <laughs> I, I like how I mentioned that I was watching it, and you both knew exactly the one. I meant. Yeah, it was horrifying. It was so they deep fried that thing. Yeah, they deep fried it. Yeah, and then they dipped it into their uh, their weird tzatziki that they made. Yeah. Do you think those are a troll? Like, like, do you think that they know it's ridiculous and they're actually countering on that to get it spread? Because they, they've got to. Not yeah. only did they deep fry it, they then covered it, covered the deep fried part in pizza sauce, and then cheese, and then pepperoni, and baked it additionally so that it became a big <laughs> deep fried quesadilla <laughs> pizza that they then dipped in homemade tzatziki. Oh my god, there's a lot of videos like that, right? But uh huh, they're they're just sane enough to possibly be real. And I was thinking, is this like an onion version of one of those where we're taking those way too much work for five minutes of eating videos and pushing it to the most extreme? But even for a parody, that's still a lot of work. Yeah. I, I, I don't think it was like promoting anything. Maybe, I mean, maybe it was like totally yeah, real. Right. Maybe someone thought that was a good idea to eat this like 9,000 calorie quesadilla pizza dip thing what if two things is happening either it's totally real like you said or it's parody but in which case it's still a disturbing amount of work because <laughs> they're really doing everything you know yeah if it's a parody it's like total like posed law stuff like yeah. it's just it's just realistic enough that you kind of have to question whether it's a parody it's it's beautiful. That's that's the ideal kind, especially when. Uh, so, uh, one of my favorite kinds of tweets to make is uh, very strange food ideas. But you see that sometimes um, when people people try too hard, where it's like uh, a hot dog with toothpaste on it, and it's like, no, no, that's not that doesn't have the same energy. Yeah, that doesn't yeah, have the same energy. Obvious. It's like taking a tomato and syringe injecting mayonnaise into it and then baking it. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine I someone doing that. It turned out to be surprisingly good. If someone said, you wouldn't believe it, but this turns out good, I could see myself thinking, you know what? I don't believe it, but just in case, I'll take a bite. <laughs> it's Right? And then all of a sudden, you're like, yep, tastes like hot mayonnaise inside of a baked tomato. <laughs> I, exactly. I got what I deserve. <laughs> Exactly, like I can't believe I fall for that. Whereas the the toothpaste on a hot dog, right? No one's gonna fall. You know, I the type of times it's like both worlds. Like, uh, it's true and it's a troll. Like, I have this weird thing where I like the motion smoothing on TV. Like for some reason, I like when the HD TV has that really bizarre I don't motion smoothing. <laughs> Everyone hates that. that that's that's. <laughs> Everyone hates when when stuff looks like everything looks like when a spider moves and it's like kind of uncanny. Like yeah, there's like a weird uncanny valley 
to it. Yeah, it's like a window. It's like you're looking outside of a window to the real world outside, but it's uh, a fictional movie world and isn't behind your screen. And it's kind of hyper real because it looks so realistic that it almost looks unrealistic. It's, it's like this weird type of dreamy, smooth. And for some reason, I like watching things like that, but I know it horrifies people. So I'll mm. make a tweet like, does anyone have any ideas how to increase the motion smoothing on the TV or <laughs> which like TV has the most motion smoothing? Like I'm looking for as much like motion smoothing as possible. And people get like horrified. They're like, you got to be lying. <laughs> You gotta be trolling, and I, I kind of am trolling because I know it's gonna annoy people, but I sincerely believe it too. Like it's not, I'm actually not lying, and I wonder if that video is like that, where the person knows it's ridiculous, but they're also, they really eat that. I can see it being both. Welcome to Death Sentence, everyone. That was our, uh, our weird food and motion smoothing discourse for the day. Uh, we got on the line with us on the dis- on the Discord is uh, do you, do you prefer, uh, Trevor or T. Either one is fine, but you know what? You can you can call me Trevor actually. It's, it's okay. cool. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is Trevor. Uh, he does. But why don't you um, introduce yourself? Uh, sure. Uh, I do a podcast called Champagne Sharks with uh, my co-host um, D Mills and Kenny and our other co-host Mike R.I.P. He passed, but uh, we still keep him in the spirit of the show and like to mention him as uh, one of the co-hosts. And we talk about like different things, usually through the lens of race, but not always. Like sometimes we just have a straightforward pop culture conversation or politics conversation, but it's usually pop culture and culture politics through uh, the lens of race and the conceit of the show. I'm not sure how well we've been kind of keeping to it. I think we've kind of had a little bit of format drift. Like, I'm not sure how well we keep to it. But uh, the original idea of the show was the conceit is that um, instead of uh, doing what people usually think of as uh, uh, podcasts or books or shows about race, where the idea is to explain like um, blackness or minority-ness to um, non-black people or white people, the conceit of the show is that we explain white people to uh, non-white people. And mm-hmm. if that still counts as uh, race discourse, like why is, you know, like challenging the idea that um, being white is kind of like default and normative or neutral in that, you know, you're only discussing race when you're discussing uh, non-white people. So that's kind of, what the origin of the show is. Mm. Yeah, and it's a damn good show. I, th- I think I've actually listened since the first episode. So oh, great. I'm, Thank you so much. Yeah, um, I've been there all the, all the way, even on the first episodes where the audio went all crazy. For, so, there was one. Oh, it was uh, so bad. You know, I never <laughs> knew how crazy the audio was until recently because I've been re listening to the show. Um, yeah, there was the one episode where, where like a sound sample kept repeating all the way through the show. 
yeah, uh, you know what? I think we fixed that in post. I hope it's not still like that. But yeah, there's a weird sound sample that goes through the show. Wait, did you listen in real time when the show first aired? Hmm? Uh, I think so. Um, no, I, no I, I listened to it on, on iTunes. So um, if you listen to that, like you must really be like a day one listener then, because I guess we corrected yeah, um, that that uh, audio sample like within like a couple of days. So, so yeah, you uh, really are a day one listener. I'm impressed. Thank well, you. yeah, okay, got got some um, champagne sharks kudos there. Great. Uh, just so, in case you listen to that episode, though, just to make sure we, we indeed did uh, fix that. Hmm. But, but yeah, the sound quality was terrible. I, I'm I'm impressed you persevered through it. But uh, yeah, but it, it is a really good show, uh, and you know, as a white person, I don't get to hear some of this discourse ever anywhere else. So it's you know, it's cool. Here, hearing the description of explaining white people to non-white people um, both excites and terrifies me. Uh, because I'm oh, yeah. white, and and I feel like I know what simply must be coming down the line when I hear that. Yeah, we, we, we I mean, I mean we try to create a sense of weirdness because we kind of try to make people kind of feel like what it's like to hear yourself explain to yourself all the time, which is hmm. I think kind of the reality that a lot of our uh, black people have when they are you know absorbing stuff about race. Yeah, like yeah. The, the white people are just the neutral race. They're like uh, humans in Star Trek. Everyone else has uh, it, like qualities, but white people are just people. It's like uh, black people fall into that same trap too of like treating that as like uh, normative. So it's like even with this book, there's still like a sense, even though it's written by a black person, the book that we're discussing today, there's still a sense that it's kind of made to humanize uh, black people to non-black people, you know, which is not something that I um, am automatically against. Like, I think there's a place for that. Like, uh, our show isn't this idea that you should never do that, but just, it would be interesting to try to see if it's jarring or how it feels to have the opposite um, mission. Hmm. Yeah. So the, the book we're talking about is the Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. Uh, Colson Whitehead, you probably know of. He is he's big right now. Um, so he won the National Booker Prize, uh, the Pulitzer. Uh, he's got a MacArthur Genius Grant, a Guggenheim Fellowship. Like every award you can get for being smart and good, he's got it. Um, Barack Obama calls his um, previous book the Underground Railroad. Terrific. Uh, Michael Dean in The Guardian calls it an elegant, devastating powerhouse of a book. Um, and he's he's kind of a cool writer because he does he works in other genres. He's done um, Underground Railroad had like a magical realist um, bent to it. He's the one he wrote a book before the Underground Railroad called Zone One, which was literally a zombie book. It was like a zombie horror book about people going around a city cleaning up zombies um so he's not afraid to fuck around with genre uh, but um nickel boys is pretty much straightforward um would one of you guys like to have a stab at like summarizing it i feel like i've talked a lot so far so uh, if you want to summarize it Langdon, it's down to you i will uh uh 
uh, I'm nervous. I don't mind. I don't mind. <laughs> Good. I'm coward. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll say. I'll say. Um, and if I get any details wrong, because I read it at a breakneck pace, so please feel free to uh, interject if I get any slight details wrong. But mm-hmm. uh, it's a book about um, based on a true story, but a fictionalized version of a true story, as in its uh, names are changed. But there was a story about some reformatory school that uh, they discovered um, in the late 20th century had uh, had a mass grave where they buried all these black students on the ground and it was like a big scandal and they were digging up all these um, unmarked graves of black students. Something I was very surprised that I either I never heard of or I think I might have heard about it in passing and like it's way too horrifying to be so little known like it's very uh disturbing and i feel like if it wasn't black kids this would be uh a household name incident but uh this book is kind of like a fictionalized um version of what i guess colson whitehead through his research feels accurately um portrays the spirit of what it must have been like so it's not the actual name of the same school. I think it's a name of a real school called Dozier or something. Yeah, Dozier. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas um, in the book, it's the Nickel School, and it follows this boy named Elwood. Is his last name Curtis? Is that? Um, El- his name's yeah, Elwood Curtis. Definitely, yeah. Elwood is his first name. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and. And how how he goes from like uh he's a black boy that goes from a life full of um promise and and potential to by a a stroke of bad luck and racism um ends up being uh put into school for something that he didn't even uh do and getting immersed in this um environment of environment of abuse and the the thing that kept coming to mind to me reading the book that I think kind of tonally captured a lot of it, even though it's still very different, is it reminded me of kind of like a Shawshank Redemption, but for black kids in the in Jim Crow. Mm, yeah, it had a, it had a lot of those um, callbacks to me. Maybe maybe keep thinking of Shawshank Redemption. I don't know if mm. you guys think that's an accurate. Uh, no. For some reason, I was thinking of Orange Is the New Black, even though that's. I can see that too completely different but it, it, <laughs> yeah i was like that's that's, that's a bit of a yeah, tonal the, difference there right <laughs> tonal, yeah tonally very different but uh, <laughs> i mean all of those things have the same thing of the like an someone who doesn't deserve to go to prison goes to prison exactly and, yeah this and that was kind of my my first thing i i wasn't like super into with the book because i i was kind of like 50 50 on it I, I um like i really liked underground railroad but th- this wasn't didn't quite land for me and maybe because like you i just read it in like a marathon session but um i'm so glad to hear you say that because i, I feel <laughs> kind of the same and i thought thinking like am i gonna be like the uh spoiler the spoiler sport for not being enthusiastic about this. I, I went in with ex- pretty good expectations based on the raves I've read about Colson Whitehead. It's my first time ever reading him. Hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah, I felt I felt the same. I um it's part of the reason why I deferred um summarizing it. Uh, just sort of, it it's harder to do justice to a book that you weren't fully enthused about. Um yeah. I, I, like like I looked into the subject matter of the book um and that's uh similar to like the first time that you learn about like the Tuskegee um uh medical experiments. Um it it's this really powerful and disturbing tale of of how American racism um just I don't want to technically all racism is an unnecessary brutalization, but it's like extremely um like uh, uh, superbly uh, indefensible. And this this is another instance of that. Like, you read about it, and you're like, this is really fucking horrible how they more or less, like, like, tortured these boys. Um, But the book itself, I don't know, it's it's almost like the more that I read up on the, uh, the source material for it, the more I had to wonder, like, why precisely was this made into a fictional book as opposed to just giving me... Oh my me... God. Thank you. I, uh-huh. you. That's totally my number one concern. And you just made me feel so much... This is like <laughs> anti-gaslighting. Like I feel... <laughs> Thank you. Thank like you. lifting uh, you out of the cave. Like, no, you're not crazy. <laughs> yes. yes, yes. I, I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just that excited to hear you say that. <laughs> oh, no, no. That's, I, 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 I'm, I'm glad because that's... I was, I was also half worried like... Because there are some instances where you can read like a fictionalization of a real event and it can um, simplify things in a way that makes it capable of being understood. Because I think there's plenty of uh, instances in history and political theory and philosophy and mathematics, yada, yada, yada. You can make a really long list of things that are very complex. But if you simplify a couple edges, you can at least get people to begin to understand it and then go back and fill in the details that you elided before. Um, but this was an instance where it's like, I was trying to think who would pick up the fictionalized version of those events who wouldn't also be interested or more interested in just reading the actual history of it. Exactly. And that premising real that, that premise, that problem really kept sucking me out of it because every time I read something, I was like, did this really happen? And if so, I'm more interested in reading about the real people it happened to. I like two words came to mind when I was reading it. Because I was like, why do I like some historical fiction, even if it's um about something um heinous, but this is um really kind of um sucking me um out of the story and like three words came to mind for me and they didn't all start with D on purpose. That's just like a weird coincidence. Like I'm not trying to be like a literary or cute. Like this is literally like what came to mind, but it was like, I think it was like distance, uh, digestion and discourse were the three things that came to mind. Like I think a historical atrocity has to have a certain amount of distance from it. So, you know, you can kind of um, uh, figure out how to like be uh, digested and then see you have a full discourse about it where you like kind of process it. And now we can kind of explore it through alternative versions. So it's something like life is beautiful or something like if people just found out about the Holocaust, like a few years ago, and then like 
one of the first things that makes people aware of it is that movie Life is Beautiful or something like that, even if it's well-meaning or whatever, it's just kind of weird because you haven't actually fully processed the scope of the real atro atrocity. Like, why are you trying to make entertainment uh, around it? Not saying that this was a recent occurrence because this happened in the real life version decades ago, but we only just learned about it. So we don't have distance from the time that we, um, it was revealed. And for some of us like me, we learned about it through this book. So it's like, it's like someone just told you like a horrifying thing, like, you know, like, like brace yourself, uh, this atrocity happened. And it's like, oh my God, tell me more. Well, let me give you a little fable about, and you're like, what, are you serious? Like, hmm. you just broke this horrible atrocity to me. Like, why are you jumping to a parable or something or a fake yeah. version? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, like his previous book was about slavery and it was a magical realist book about slavery with like a underground train running through the the underground railroad was literally a railroad and it was running under american stuff but yeah we've we've had like hundreds of years to think about slavery and it's not like we're very good at it still but um you know exactly you, you can you can play with stuff and even though like playing with the slave trade sounds crazy and uh but yeah it, it did seem kind of like unnecessary to have yeah. this in a fictional format. Like the thing that made um, the Underground Railroad powerful from from the stuff that I'd read about. I haven't gotten around to reading it myself, but just through dint of the stack of reading list, we all have that problem. But from what I'd read, it was it was people saying that um, taking the one taking magical realism, which is a, a genre of um contemporary fantasy largely driven by people of color and applying that a black writer applying that to grappling with slavery and the black liberationists who worked very hard to free their own um during slavery it's like okay this is a really powerful thing and so that's a powerful engine for a really good story um but yeah here it felt i agree with your notion that, that um that we require a bit of psychic distance from something, especially something that has so many fine details. Like it, he, he would have been fine telling the story of a boy's school that deals with abuse because we have notions of that in culture already. Um, less so in America where we didn't really have schools like that as prominently as a place like Britain, where there's actually a huge tradition of stories about the abuses of boys' schools or girls' schools. Mm. Um, but when you're basing it off of a very specific school that, um, like that school itself only closed in 2011. Um, so it's only been oh. closed for eight years. Yeah. And, 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 do you, and do you remember the year that the um, bodies were discovered? Because um, one thing I one thing I did realize was as recently as April two thousand nineteen, they discovered twenty seven more graves. I haven't been able to find uh, when I haven't found yet when the first um, graves were found. But I mean, this is actually an ongoing uh, thing. Mm. I think it was like twenty fifteen. Um, I think it was after it was closed, but um, 
Yeah, it was definitely after it was closed. I don't remember the exact year, uh, but it was this is 2014. To- a forensic investigation was carried out, but um, oh, the forensic investigation from or the report from 2014 after a forensic investigation uh, found 55 uh, remains of 55 students. Gee, 55. Fucking hell. Yeah, and that was Damn. from. And that was from uh, one uh, report. And they recently uh, just found like 29 more a couple months ago. Like, like it's so horrifying. I'm like, we still, it's almost like a re-erasure. Like, uh, you haven't even finished identifying the actual people and you're already um, erasing them with fictional versions. Like, we have to at least uh, unerase and make the original people I mean, and maybe this was someone else to do in the future as a result of the popularity of this book, maybe, but it doesn't make it less weird to experience. I feel like if I read this yeah. book after it was properly litigated in the um, discourse, I could probably see myself enjoying I this mean, book much more 10 years from now. It it does lead to... Um, it, it's a strange dialectical problem with how we grapple with these kinds of historical... Um, like nightmares uh of so i we all agree kind of that the book feels like the cart before the horse but you bring up the good point trevor of is there potential for the fact that this book exists and is the book that colson whitehead is following an immensely popular i mean the underground railroad won the pulitzer um so it's a very well circulated very well acclaimed book and to follow with this um it's we can't credit it for bringing attention to this necessarily i mean obviously i i didn't know about this issue or if i did i only heard about it in passing and it probably only registered in my head as a boys school where white americans killed uh black boys which unfortunately is tragically common outside of even these situations um but we can't really know whether this has shined more of a light or brought more attention and focus and effort on these until, as you said, years down the line. It sort of makes it it makes it really tricky to do any kind of um, strong literary approach to it in terms of like literary criticism. Aside from saying like Colson Whitehead is uh, a very fine writer, like sentence by sentence. It's a beautifully written book. Um, so, like, yes, yes, I, yes, as a technician, I totally had no problems uh, with what he did as a technician uh, yeah. in the book. I agree. But yeah, it, 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 we we have those other questions of like, at a certain point, you should be a good enough author that the technical work you should be able to expect that it's going to hit a certain bar because it's like you're a professional novelist and you're not like there are some really fine technical writing in uh in like pulp but for the most part we know what we go to pulp for and we all go to pulp at some point for the same kinds of stuff and for literary stuff we look for other things so we can expect it to be a certain spot so then we can turn our eyes to those other questions and yeah it almost yeah i was i was haunted by that the whole time of like this i spent more time putting the book down and researching the stuff that informed the book than I did reading it. And sometimes that feels like a benefit for a book. Like there are, there are certain books that I've read where 
the way that it opened up an event felt like opening a portal for me to make me uh, more compassionate, more empathetic, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, maybe it's because I'm plugged in enough to like Twitter and following news stuff that if I had gotten, if I'd seen on the timeline some article about like, hey, here's um, an instance of American inst institutionalized racism, racism and the violence of it in this boys' school, and it was a good article about it, I guarantee everyone would have like clicked on it and read it. Like we all have similar circles that would circulate. And so it's that I was like, why do, why do I even want to go back to the fictional book when I could read even more about the actual stuff, especially since we live in the age of Google. I mean, it's not even like the book is our only way to access that information. And one thing that scared me about with the book, wait, I'm sorry. Um, I'm not sure you were done. I didn't. Oh, no, I, I was. Okay. Um, one thing that it kind of bothered me about it was and what I was worried about, which, you know, whether intentionally or not, because it might be serving this purpose, even if it didn't intentionally mean to, but I wondered if it was a way to kind of soften or fun up the um, source material for um, white readers, particularly like white liberal readers, you know, because the goals of it felt different. Like, for example, if this was a book about like a Holocaust atrocity or something, I feel like it wouldn't have this tone. Like, like it, the book suffers from what I, and, and what I'm about to describe, I don't think is unique to uh, black stuff. Like, I think there is some Holocaust stuff that um, does this, but I don't think it would do it so soon after the discovery. And what I mean by that is, uh, this book falls into the sensibility of something like I, uh, me and my co-host call like beautiful strugglism, like, which I feel like really informs a lot of black themed literature that's geared toward white people where the idea is that, um, you know, what's notable about the atrocity that the uh, black people suffer isn't really the, um, institutional or systemic or historical stuff that um led to it but more like um the individual kind of bad apples that uh were behind it and how beautiful the struggle is like how um how how your takeaway is like look at all these um black people can endure like how much suffering like they suffer with nobility, you know, and and you're supposed to be impressed with the uh, and and inspired by like the endless reserve of like inner strength and resilience that they have. And like to me, with a story, this Hain is like the first thing I think is, okay, how did they get away with this for so long? How did all those black boys disappear? And if those white boys disappearing you know something would have would have happened like the families would have been like where are these boys the fact that 80 something people can disappear and that's not considered a failure for the school like like any school that lost 80 white kids over a period of time would not last 111 years like there's a lot of broader more to me deep questions that can come out of this 
book and instead I feel like it was a little too individualistic. Like, you know, look at how these handful of kids suffer and it felt like an Oprah book club kind of book where it's like, you know, a housewife can kind of, you know, get some kind of um, um, inspiration from this kind of like reading um, a, a bio or a novel about a scrappy um, person who was abused by their parents or something like, like it, it's kind of flattened, I think, the material yeah. in a way that made like a, a white liberal easier to digest it instead of really identifying like shit, the system we're living in is fucked up and I contribute to it and so forth. It's it's part of part of the defense for um for things like transgressive or extreme literature is, is precisely to address the points that you were bringing up of like really hammering home that like no suffering is suffering it's not it's not this beautiful thing that you endure it's i mean we also get this in um thankfully it's uh becoming a prevalent discursive point in say um uh like abuse and trauma ptsd discourse of like this notion of telling someone who has ptsd like oh you're strong because you live with ptsd it's like no it fucks me up and i want it gone like you wouldn't say like oh exactly you're so strong. You have polio. You're like, no, I just want to not have polio. Like it's you do- don't don't romanticize it. Yeah. Um, and the whole notion of sometimes tapping into those uh, moments of brutality, which obviously can sometimes be um, overused, but that is more to make that connection of like, no pain, pain is pain. Like you're not, it's not this beautiful thing. It's not like it, you should be horrified. That should be the only thing that you feel in this instance. It shouldn't be. Um, yeah. Get, and especially I'll, I'll when you. Sorry. Are you on? Oh, no, I was going to say, like, I'll give another example. Like, uh, the movie Life is Beautiful, like, beautiful is right there in the title. And that's like kind of like a beautiful struggle type of movie for uh, Jewish people in the Holocaust. But we've had before then uh so much just straight up literature we had straight up uh nuremberg hearings and hara Arendt, like you know writing the banality of evil and like things like the rise and fall of the third reich like they dissected and picked apart and came up with all the different systemic causes and the ripples and the history of anti-semitism that led to it from the pogroms through World War One, like there's been so much dissection of like never again. How did this happen? Like you get to a point where at this point you can see people doing beautiful struggle stuff around the Holocaust because all the bigger stuff has been kind of you know done discourse like like litigated and whereas with this one that you know that's whole, whole cart before the horse thing. I'm wondering if it's a canny decision. I hope it's not, but I wonder if it's a canny decision by someone who kind of understands his white audience. Like, you know, this is how they need to hear it. And I can uh, give that to them. Because to me, just a weird choice as a black person. Why would, like, forget about the audience, but to me, like, as a black person, it just seems weird for that to be my first choice if I saw discover the story about what happened to my people like it's it's a little weird to me that a black person that was his first impulse of how to communicate it to the world 
Yeah. Um, I mean, we did say that it was beautifully written book, and yeah, it is. But does I I had some like I think some of my biggest problems with it was uh, Elwood himself wasn't just I didn't 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 like the guy, and it mm-hmm. totally. <laughs> he I mean he's he he suffered from that same thing you get in Shawshank Redemption, Orange's New Black, where the person has to be innocent and morally pure in order for the, you to like care about them. Whereas, like, I, I like the other guy in the book, Turner. He, he he seemed like he had his head on straight. And yeah, Elwood seemed kind of just kind of a tool. And his, he, he's his kind like, of a tool. He's also kind of a Mary Sue at the same time. It's weird. Hmm, he's, yeah, I was, he's, I was gonna say he's kind of a Mary Sue as well. He's my bad. Morally perfect. He always stands up for the little guy. He like, uh, yeah, and. Um. Yeah, I did much prefer Turner, and his like uh, constant referencing of Martin Luther King was. I don't know what um exactly Whitehead was trying to do with that. I I kind of, part of me was thinking it's like a critique of Martin Luther King, and it's a critique of like nonviolence. Um, there's this whole I think like a direct quote from one of his speeches where he talks about like. How um, uh, they're going to lock us up, but we will still love them. No, no matter what white people do to us, we're going to uh, defeat them with the power of our love. That kind of thing. Yeah, um, yeah. I thought maybe that this whole thing was like a, a critique of that. It was it was like calling bullshit on the idea? And maybe I'm giving him a bit too much credit there because he is pretty. I thought it was too at first. No, first I thought it was the opposite. I thought this is because one of the things that we say on on our show that we say that um, it's you will never have trouble um, selling um, black stories to um, white people as long as the lesson is like you know don't revolt. Like your power is in the the nobility of uh, how you endure and stuff and. be better than your like that's a common theme in any black work that gets uh, celebrated by uh, the white mainstream uh that's supposed to be uh woke and 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 good on race so when i was reading the um book i thought okay he's he's just playing to what white people like everything every figure in there was to me, something that white liberals know, like the idea of Martin Luther King and James Baldwin being the only two figures where at the time there were so many people, it would be like someone to me was writing, it's like when I see things like Wedding Singer or something in the 80s, but you could tell it's someone that's writing it from the present because everything in it, it's like a jumble of the 80s and every song that is mentioned is an iconic standard of the 80s that everybody today knows. Whereas uh, as someone who was alive in the 80s, there were a lot of songs. Like that wasn't how the radio sounded. Like, you know, there's a lot of things that were hugely popular at the time that don't stand the test of time at all that nobody knows. And there's things that weren't so big then that retroactively kind of became better known than they were. Like um, 
with time and stuff. And um, they create this view of the 80s where it's like uh, everyone's walking around with a Rubik's Cube in their pocket. And then they pull out like uh, something and just mention a conversation. Hey, you crazy Pac-Man. Like, like things don't even make sense. Like, you know, all the iconic things. That's what this felt like with civil rights. Like it was just his two big inspirations were Martin Luther King, who white liberals have known forever, and James Baldwin, who white liberals have recently discovered with, um, you know, that recent uh, uh, I Am Not Your Negro. And, you know, because that's his challenge. Like, they didn't even go as deep as Medgar Evers or Snicker or anything else. It just seemed like, you know, Fisher Price, like my first civil rights book. It, it was. It kind of, that's what kind of made me think that it was kind of trying to hold the white liberal audience's hand through it, kind of, and that it was um, not doing it as satire. But when it got to the point that you mentioned, that was so over the top that I thought, okay, this has to be satire. But then the epilogue, hmm. the last called Tiger to yeah. the epilogue, kind of made me think back to my first thought, which is, okay, so it seems like the lesson is to form a support group and to talk about it and and do what uh, you were saying is a popular way to treat trauma now, like tell people they're strong for it, uh, tell people to identify as survivors and, you know, victim, you know, not treat it like a problem that you have to cure and address and do restitution for. Like, it seemed to accept the Oprah-esque, you know, support group-esque type of narrative that we have around trauma now at the end. I think they ultimately endorse it. Yeah, you don't have to do any restorative justice if someone is noble for their suffering. Yeah, you, they get paid yeah. off in nobility. And, and it's and like, it would... thanks, man. Now nothing's going to change. That's tight. <laughs> and it would but almost be a, vulgar but to but give a liberal... Wait, do you guys remember that... Do you guys remember that... Um mean that's going around with the hand drowning and the other hand gives it a high five and then let's oh, yeah 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 that's what this book yeah, felt like it is too like i could say the book i could see you know you know this book made me think of i, I thought of that meme but <laughs> the hand is drowning yeah. and then a white liberal hands the black hand the book <laughs> and then let's let think holding the book that's what i thought this book was like i can i can definitely feel that it like especially because a lot of the um a lot of the boys in the book didn't so this is um kind of a granular critique but since the boys didn't feel like real boys at all it didn't feel like their suffering was real suffering a lot of the time um like because they had that they felt like the like uh these need to be good cardboard cutout uh, young black boys. So that way I can project this narrative onto them. And by stripping them of the, the messiness and complexity of being like real young boys, especially in this really brutal, horrible situation, it like we, like you brought up, we have, we're actually relatively well practiced with uh, with Holocaust narratives that like a better way to do it is to show the complexity and richness of Jewish life, which includes um, bad people or bad decisions, and then show that the Holocaust was particularly vicious because it didn't care about 
any level of morality outside of the Jewishness and would equally mete out these uh, hyperbolically violent punishments no matter what life was like before. And that's part of what's horrifying is, is that notion of um, it reflects sort of a theological notion of there is no heaven or hell. You just die, but made physical in something like like an abusive event. And this instead, by layering that that moralizing tone, it winds up stripping some of the horror away from what happened and that it's like it. It was more or less uh, baseless, very thinly justified violence. But then by trying to layer this, like, we're going to name check the the easy to name uh, black thinkers of this time and have, you know, a nice morally upstanding main character who always strives for uh, it's. Yeah, it, it didn't feel like. That core of real people meeting an inexplicable and unjustifiable punishment uh, mm-hmm. and brutality, which yes, which is what the real event was like. It, it's not even like that would be imposing a narrative. It's it, you read about like there's no way that infractions in a school could justify being killed by your instructors. The focus like, there's is no so, way. Yeah, the focus is so small that you just can't get any sense of scale, really, except for the bookends. Like, they kind of have the, I think, place in the present. But like you said, it's like Orange is a New Black. It's such a individualistic, um, um, interpersonal. Yeah, I think interpersonal. That, that's the word I was looking for, like the opposite systemic. The book is way too interpersonal and personality driven to mm-hmm. uh, ever really yeah. give what I felt was a sense of scale. Like, I just felt like I was just looking at dysfunctional family, dysfunctional house that was dysfunctional for like a couple of generations. There wasn't a sense like, wow, this is um, this not enough scale, basically, for me. Yeah. And it, I think that would have worked well if he focused in on if there is more of either a, a real hook, like basing it much more on a real boy's experience in it, uh, in, in that environment, or um, to go to the, the classic standby of like Toni Morrison made her stories work when they referenced larger issues, partly by making an amount of distance and then really deeply fleshing out the, the lives and familial relations and general social relations of the people inside. So that it didn't feel like blunt caricature. And this at times felt, felt almost like it was so concept driven that it was hard for him to pull out an exact, like an exact story or narrative thrust that wasn't this deeply artificial one. I think, yeah, and it, I think and you're about of, to use the word, sorry, go on. It kind of robs some of the moments that are supposed to be emotional of their impact. Like when, uh, I think his name's Freddie. He's, he's the, the kid who's a boxer. He, he doesn't, uh, throw the fight, so he's taken out back and shot, or killed, or some somehow. Um, yeah, I, th- I think they kind of imply that he was uh, on the rings, and they like whipped him to death or something. With yeah, the... something like that. They might have shot yeah. him too. I don't. I don't know. But um, yeah, it, it kind of his his death doesn't feel like it had a whole lot of impact because he was so thin as a character. We didn't get yeah. 
any spend really any time with him. He was basically introduced in that chapter for that purpose. And he was like a sweet, simple guy who was really good at boxing. And then he, he dies and we're sad. And yeah, it's uh, it was just kind of a missed opportunity to make you feel something. Like um like when um, uh when stuff happens in like Orange's New Black, you've got like a whole build up. So when something bad happens to one of those people, you you feel it. Like um but yeah, we didn't get any build up, any any so there was no real you know there's no real yeah, no, I, to I totally agree. Um, are you actually situated in England now, or are you? Uh, yes. Okay. The reason I yeah, asked. I'm is... currently in the disgusting, sweltering Manchester uh, weather. But, okay. Uh, yeah. I, I just want to think, for, for some reason, you, um, not so much the other speaker, but you, I get a slight bit of a lag. So. Oh, right. Okay. When I jump, when I jump and talk over you, I just want you to know it's because like oh. there's a lag. No, no, that's in... that's cool. I, I yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. That's why I'm gonna make sure you know uh, specifically with you. There's like a little bit of a like a two second lag. So then, like I, I realize you're still talking after I start jumping in. But yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying, and I also think that um, this book suffers. Like this is a really great essay that like like one good thing about having this show is uh like people will think like i know like a lot of stuff but what's actually really interesting is that when the show since the show started a lot of people send me interesting things and the show has kind of led to a lot of these articles and books and like concepts being like sent to me that have uh informed me like, it's very much a conversation and something that somebody sent me um is this article by this guy called Frank Chin. I actually never heard of Frank Chin until I started the um, show, him. but he, he was like a Chinese writer that wrote about race. I don't know. If, uh, I mean, he was a playwright as well. I don't know if you guys know of him, but no. he, he was a playwright, but he also did like uh, social commentary. Um, but he had this uh, essay called Racist Love, and it was a pretty good essay because he was talking about how people always talk about racist hate, but they don't talk about racist love and racist love is kind of like the counterpart. It's like the velvet glove that goes over racist hate. You know, he, he was saying how like um, um, Fu Manchu is like a character that exemplifies uh, racist hate, but Charlie Chan is uh, racist love. Like, you know, in a racist society um, with Fu Manchu, they tell you this is who we fear you to be. This is who we demonize you as. And then with racist love, they're like, this is who we as racists need you to be to love you. And and um, he's like, Charlie Chan has like no sex drive. Fu um, Manchu um, is like impregnating like uh, white women and creating like this breed of half Chinese Superman children that like, there's a lot of like kind of uh, psychosexual uh weird hangups uh in the Fu Manchu story when you I wonder one of the ironies of uh the whole ye yellow fever uh no no not yellow fever ye yellow peril stuff is a lot of the stereotypes that used to be um that are applied toward like black people and like you know this fear of like you know black men sleeping with all the white women and 
white genocide and stuff. They used to have that with the Chinese and the Asians before they kind of got re-situated into like a model minority. So there was a lot of like yeah. fear of like, for real, it's, it's ironic because now uh, Chinese people complain the most about having an emasculated image in the media, but these have the opposite, like being like these oversex uh, corruptors of white women who are going to uh, take over. And that was what uh, Fu Manchu was. And the racist love concept is like, Charlie Chan is the opposite. He's very loyal to America. He doesn't, uh, he's self-segregating. He has his <coughs> family. He doesn't, um, he's non-sexual. He's not like uh, dangerous or alluring like a Fu Manchu. He's, not, he's non-violent. And I feel like uh, the caricatures in this book have kind of that going on where there's like, uh, bad caricature so then elwood is kind of like uh that racist love caricature this is like um what a lot of racist people and they can be including like racist white liberals kind of need um a black person to be and that's what they're going to fall in love with the same way um white readers i mean white readers and viewers fell in love with charlie chan yeah this is like a elwood is like a you're a credit to your race kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know what? That phrase actually appeared in the novel. They actually said that. Uh, <laughs> Marconi, the store owner, says, and at first I was trying, I wasn't sure if he was put that in there as a critique of Marconi or to be played straight. Like, you know, like, I'm like, is he trying to, like, say that uh, Marconi, for all his uh, good aspects, is still, like, horribly racist when he says that? Or is he actually saying that to inform the reader straight up sincerely that mm. Elwood is a predator's risk. Yeah, he's one of the good ones. Yeah, that, that, was, a, that was a weird moment. Yeah, I noticed that one. And um, yeah, it's, um, so to sum up this book, I think it is kind of a, a missed opportunity and just a bad idea in general in the, you know, this would work really well as a, like a long article or even a, a book, like a nonfiction book about uh, Dozier. And yeah, just some of the execution in the book is just, yeah, he's written like a Marty Sue character. It's very clearly you know, written with the, the white liberal audience in mind, like the, knowing it's going to be on Oprah's book club pretty soon, probably. And, and, um, and Obama's list, Obama put it on his, uh, 2019 reading list, which is something I'm still don't understand why it exists. But oh yeah, but he he's got a yeah. I I don't know why he's still a celebrity. I guess it's probably and, not like he, just, he released his 2019 reading list. This was on it, and he also just released his summer Spotify listening playlist, which is like <laughs> why. He's uh, got a good brand manager. What can I say? Exactly. exactly. Man's uh, looking to diversify. He's curating as he watched at all times. I remember he had um, Old Town Road on his Spotify playlist. So, Well, that song slaps, so that's... Yeah. So he can't be all bad. I, I forgive him for the drones now. Um, One thing I'll say about this book, right, is like Shawshank Redemption is kind of the same thing, but I think with Shawshank Redemption, there's no pretense that the person is making a larger statement about anything social like social redemption is not a critique on prisons or it's not inviting you to rethink the prison industrial system there's, there's like no real 
pretense that it's trying to do woke commentary. It's meant to be a gripping uh, character study and a plot. Like it, 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 it's a nice gripping yarn and it works that way. And it's very unconfused. So it's like whatever your deeper thoughts are about the prison system or critique of end all prisons or whatever, you are not going into Shawshank with that. It has no illusions about what it is. Whereas this one, I feel like it wants to offer the thrills and the uh, uh, twists and turns and and ups and downs of a plot-driven, character-driven book like uh, Shawshank Redemption, but it also wants to be a eyes in the prize kind of um, social justice novel. And, and I think that it ends up clashing in poor taste. Yeah, and we haven't I agree. Gone, we haven't gone to um, one of the things. So I read a few interviews with uh, Colson Whitehead before, and one of the things is he's he seems very self conscious about positioning this as a Trump era novel, and like making the what? comparisons between like um, this the uh, Nickel Academy and the uh, migrant detention centers. That's absolutely uh, crass and self servicing. Yeah. That's... Yeah, there's there's no other way to interpret that, especially because this is based on a real. I I just have to leap in because that infuriates me. <laughs> this is based on a real thing, and yeah. concentration camps are real things. So it's it's simultaneously a disservice to both. You're not you've decided you don't want to really tell the story of what happened to those boys for over a hundred years because you want to comment on the concentration camps for too much of a fucking coward to write a novel about that. And and also too also too, like I totally agree with you. And I would add too, if he's worried about them taking it as a um commentary on the Trump thing, what you pointed out, which is that it's a real thing, that just makes it a self-indictment because that's on him. He could have written a nonfiction book about this real story. Like, like it's his watering down and dilution of it that is precisely what puts it in the danger of being mistaken as a Trump ice commentary. Like, nobody made him uh, distance it so much and dilute it so much that it was in danger of that, like especially when, like you said, it's a real, it's a real incident. He could have just written a nonfiction book about this, or he could have even written a fiction book, but tried to keep the names of everything as real as possible, or something. You know? Yeah, I mean, we have um. So Borges' early fiction was all um, embroidered historical fiction, where he'd pick real historical figures and more or less tell their life story, but he'd fill in their gaps. And in his own way. Um, and that stuff gets overlooked for his more experimental later stuff. But I think that serves as a good model for something that could have been done here of like tell as much of the real story of real boys who were there as he possibly can, but with the freedom of modifying things yeah. as needed for. Um, because so long as you know that like I'm nailing the major points and the only thing that I'm changing is maybe how they speak to each other or things like that then but yeah those to then... can really work those can really work for teaching history like i uh got into um i went through this phase where i uh was really really into uh the tudor era uh british history but there was this 1970s miniseries called uh elizabeth r 
and another movie called The Other Boiling Girl that were like historical kind of fiction, but got enough of the details right that it. I ended up doing the real research. I realized, wow, like 90% of that stuff was true. They just threw into melodrama as connective tissue to the history and, to make it entertaining to watch. And he could have done that with this. It's especially mystifying because why did he invent a whole new boys' school and then spend, like, the, the version that I had uh, mentioned that it was based on a real boys' school. And it takes, like, one second of Googling to find the name of the real boys' school that it's based on. The Wikipedia article has it listed within the first paragraph. Like, why not just set it in the Dozier School for Boys? Like, I don't... Totally, he, yeah, I don't get it. He added a weird amount of distance and then immediately erased that distance. And it's like, you just don't want to be culpable or responsible for the story you put forward. You want to get the credit without any of the risk. Yeah, it's I like agree. he's a liberal or something. Yeah. Um, Ooh. <laughs> That's the thing. People forget there are black liberals, there are Asian liberals, there are Hispanic liberals that have like the same failings as a lot of these white liberals. It's, as far as like their fear of confronting... Um, what this country is like head on. Hmm. Yeah. So, um, okay. I like, I'm thinking, I know it's, it's dumb to give a book like a score out of 10 or something, but I'm thinking we're not recommending that pe the folks at home get, rush out and buy this one. Uh, he has done like other good books, like underground railroad was really good. Uh, zone one was a fucking zombie book. It's bound to be amazing. So, um, yeah, this this was a not a, a hit for Colson Whitehead, but you know, he's still a he's still a very decent novelist, so can't. Yeah, like, and I would give him, him I would give him another chance. Yeah, this being my first time reading him, I still would read Underground Railroad. So yeah, you know, take that with, it, as, it is, as you will. Like yeah, yeah, Underground Railroad is a lot better, like on a lot of levels. Uh, but um, okay, so we're gonna play out the episode with a a track by. About an artist I have liked for a long time, dude named Author and Punisher from San Diego, California. Oh, he's, uh, he's good. Yeah, he's 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 a good egg, and he and he's look, um, he looks he looks tough as well. He looks really. We're tough. required to say this anytime Author and Punisher gets uh, mentioned, but he makes most of his instruments himself. And when we say makes um, instruments, we don't mean like he makes a guitar. He mean uh, we mean like he makes a weird like metallic scorpion structure that he like throws levers on and punches and shit, and it makes. So the crazy industrial sound aren't synthesizers. Most of the time, he does use synthesizers, but um, most of the time, they're literally industrial contraptions that he's made. Mm, yeah, he's, and and his name is what Punisher? Uh, author and Punisher. Author and Punisher. That sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's, it's incredible. And uh, yeah, he his shit doesn't sound like anyone else's because he make yeah he makes the instruments to make this stuff. It's it's incredible. But um, so he put out a song called uh, "A Crude Section In" on um, Adult Swim's singles series, which is. Like always has some really good stuff. I, I'm like I'm not a huge Adult Swim cartoons fan, but for some reason they always put out really good albums. So weird. But yeah, um, the uh, the guy the guy who runs um, 
Adult Swim and also the the like the production house that does a lot of the um Adult Swim, Swim produced work. Yeah. yeah. Um has an incredible taste in metal. He he's very active on Twitter too. He's just um he also solicited the uh the not one but two Fooly Cooly extension series, which wound up being really goddamn good too. I haven't seen them, but um I was really, really concerned, and they were both <laughs> incredible. I like both of them more than the original, and I think I like the second one the most of all of them, but yeah, just yeah, actually like legit incredible work. So yeah, adult swim is good even if you're not uh, stoned in a college dorm. Uh which is where I watched like all of Aquatine Hunger Force. That um, show slaps. Yeah, I've that never, really good. I've never seen it where I wasn't high. I <laughs> that's I good. That's, that's the ideal Aquatine Hunger Force. Uh but um yeah, so here's Orphan Punisher, but uh Trevor, aka also known as T. Uh, where can people find you? Um, go to uh, any place where podcasts are found, where they're bought and sold, uh, the podcast store. Just any place where you get your podcasts, just search Champagne Sharks and you'll find it. And go to uh, patreon.com forward slash Champagne Sharks uh, to subscribe and get like the full catalog because uh, only half the catalog is where podcasts are bought and sold like like so definitely check us out there as well and i really enjoyed this and, like uh, this, oh, and this turned out great because i was so worried it was going to be me being like but guys i just really didn't <laughs> feel this and you guys would be like you're crazy like this this <laughs> this uh not no, only like no, this I, a I lot think... of what i thought but you guys took it places i didn't even uh think of so thank you yeah, yeah absolutely that's what we're here for uh so yeah uh also you're on twitter at ricky rolls um and you can go to our own Patreon, Patreon forward slash Death Sentence, to get more episodes. Uh, we just cut a interview with the band Putrescene earlier, and that's going to be up on the Patreon. So check that one out. Uh, but here is Orphan and Punisher.